Everybody, 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 welcome, welcome. It is Friday, October 27th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. And leave a comment to let other people, you know, know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show, support the work, highlight the amazing organizing and work that's happening in our communities. All the above. All the above. On today's show, UAW settled their contract with Ford this week. The gains in the contract are, can we use the word unprecedented? Maybe. Um, that shows once again that organized, fearless worker organizing is what gets the goods. Yep, that's it. And House Republicans finally managed to elect a new Speaker of the House. Introducing Mike Johnson, the anti-LGBTQ, election-denying, climate-crisis-denying, right-wing Christian nationalist leader of the Republican-led House. Amazon announces near-record profits after two straight years of eliminating jobs and tightening worker surveillance. Also, in Amazon news, a new report shows that 4 in 10 Amazon workers report being injured on the job and about 80% of workers feel the stare of Big Brother surveilling their work, the surveilling them at work. Coincidence? <laughs> Jesus. Biden's strong support for the Israeli government, even during its indiscriminate ongoing bombing of civilians in Gaza, is hitting him in the polls. Indeed. It's going to be a complicated negotiation. Political one, that is. Also, amidst fears of a growing conflict in the region, the Biden administration approved the bombing of targets in Syria after drone and rocket attacks against American forces stationed in Iraq and Syria. <sighs> Don't you get that feeling? To get that feeling that just one thing could go wrong here and... <sighs> and another mass shooting rocks the country, this time in Lewiston, Maine. At least 18 people have been killed, and the killer remains on the loose. Um, absolutely devastating scenes right there. But you know, if uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has anything to doubt it about, has anything to say about it, well, you know, he thinks he's got the solution. What solution? Yep, make guns easier to purchase and institutionalize more people against their will. Yep, freedom rings, folks. Freedom rings. 
more local regional news. The Penridge School District passes an anti-trans policy in the name of protecting girls' sports. Yeah, that provides a platform for Republican school board members to approve of the culture war the board is carrying out just before the November 7th election, as we expected, the big performance. But as we talked a little bit on the show on Monday, Penridge parent Darren Lawson won his lawsuit against Penridge School District. The judge ordered the district to hand over its book banning records. We'll see what we get from that. Parents and community members down in the Council Rock School District are getting a little nervous. Yep, it looks like Bombs for Liberty is targeting their district um, to become the next Penridge and Central Bucks, bringing the extremist politics that they love so much um, down to Council Rock. And speaking of, uh, you know, fanning the flames of the culture war, Pennsylvania's Republican-led Senate passed legislation this week that would, uh, you know, institute a statewide book banning bill. Not so much. Or, I'm sorry, parental control bill, right? Absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. Now, of course, that has to get through the, right now. The Democrats control the House, which is, thank God. And now you also have uh, Governor Shapiro in there. And yeah, I don't think he's said yet what he plans on doing, but sure as hell hope it's going to be to veto that legislation that ever got through the House. Crazy. Oh, God, there's so much more. But uh, we're going to kind of try to focus on that <laughs> this week. It's been pretty crazy. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern. You can check him out on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Go to therigsmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind the podcast, Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. And you got to check it out. If you haven't heard already, The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. It's actually, you know, I'm going to have to start changing this a little bit for, uh, I don't know if it's so much a new podcast anymore. It's becoming a feature, really, um, of the new, The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. And you also got to check out the Civic Circle. The Civic Circle is their new Gen Z-focused and hosted podcast. Yes, about once a month. Uh, you have the fabulous host of the Civic Circle um, bring yet another perspective to the growing body of work that is the Bucks County Beacon. You can check out all that stuff. Uh, go to the thebuckscountybeacon.podbean.com for all the podcasts or download them from wherever you get your podcast. Attention to all you gamers out there. The Game Inn, that's with two ends. The Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. You got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, they've got you covered. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Gaming. That's with two N's, at the Gaming on Twitter. And, you know, you can always shoot them an email at thegaminpa at gmail.com. 
Special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at at Song of Day Man, two N's, at Song of Day Man on Twitter. I uh, got a couple irons in the fire for this week's uh, Out to Coop Live. Uh, I was hoping to um, have that sorted out before today's show, but um, I'll let you know probably later on today. Um, keep an eye on your socials. But look, everybody, if you want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as 5 bucks a month. I go to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, uh, happy, uh, you know, pre-Halloween weekend, everybody. Um, yes, spooky season is well upon us. Um, I got to say, it's like, you know, uh, there was a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, Halloween's coming up. I'm so excited. You know, um, got some things to prepare, blah, blah, blah. Then all of a sudden, boom, it's here. Um, and then now we're kind of scrambling. We're going to do some uh, pumpkin carving this weekend. Um it just always gets busy. I mean, you know, the beginning of the fall is always busy. It's you know, got lots of birthdays. Like my birthday was last week. Um, the uh, my son's was like you know a few days before that, the week before that. So it's like kind of one after the other. This is my. Uh, by the way, I'm going to show it off. This is for those of you who are on a YouTube channel. This is uh, my gift from my daughter. It is a dragon mug, um, and I'll just spill the beans right now. I'm very excited that tomorrow, um, after a long. Um, hiatus that um, has been eating away at me. I'll be back uh, DMing, right? It'd be uh, little Dungeons and Dragons tomorrow, which I'm very excited about. Um, the party is going into a festival in Fandolin. Um, kind of cool. Um, kind of cool. Anyways, that's you don't care about that, right? <laughs> but here we are. Anyways, lots going on in the news this week. Um, the I wanted to start with the UAW strike because um, it's one. I mean, it's amazing, right? Um, we saw it now. I don't know how closely everybody has been following it. I mean, I know there's a lot going on, but Wednesday night, um, UAW President Sean Fain uh, and Vice President Chuck Browning um, basically announced that they had reached a deal um, with Ford. Right, um, and they called it the most lucrative agreement per member in several decades, um, and Fain called it a historic agreement. And in many ways, um, it's true. Um, this is from the article in In These Times. It said, "Quote: We won things nobody thought possible." Fain said in a video message. "Quote: Since the strike began, Ford put fifty percent more on the table than when we walked out. This agreement sets us on a new path to make things right at Ford." and the big three across the auto industry. Together, we are turning the tide for the working class in this country. Right, and this is really true, right? I mean, this is like one of the reasons why this is so important is because, you know, this is like, you know, direct action gets the goods, right? Organized, like organizing, organized workers, union organizing, that's what gets the goods, right? You know, I, I, I've never, I've always had this, you know, uh, I wrote this article once, right, and as to try to explain this once. I actually presented it at a conference. It's called, it was called Holding Back the Membership, right? And it, it just kind of like, and again, believe me, 
this is nothing new. This is something that unions and um, organized working class folks have have talked about for like centuries, right? Like, or at least a century, right? I mean, the very least. Um, but the whole idea, right? And, and this is going to be this is true not just in union organizing, but across the across the ways, right? Is that it's about leadership, right? I mean, leadership. It's, it's about, or, or I should say, it's about a concept of leadership, right? Is that you know. We have this, this, we've been long been imprisoned, that is imprisoned in kind of our minds in the, um, in labor organizing and union movements that, you know, this business unionism idea, right? That we elect um, a leader, right? The president of our union or whatever union we're talking about. And then after the leader is elected, we go back to, back to work. Right. And then we leave it up to the experts. Right. We leave it up to the leaders. Right. To do what's best for us. Right. And it's it's a really destructive model um, of of working class organization. Right. An organization more broadly. Right. That model works very well if you want to privilege the people at the top. Right. And basically, but you're going to consult with the members periodically along the lines to rubber stamp whatever election you're going to do, right? And what it leads to, it leads to the same thing that we see in all of our other politics too as well. It leads to like this this separation between the membership, right, and the leaders because the members aren't really asked to do anything. The members aren't organized. The leaders don't uh, attempt to actually put resources into organizing. Instead, they kind of like trout out their skills, right? Their persuasive skills at the bargaining table or um, with the bosses, right? And that's, you know, it, it's like, it's the backroom deal model. It's the idea that they're going to just get good things for the members and the members are going to be fine with allowing them to keep their leadership positions, allowing them to kind of make the deals for them as long as the members get decent raises. Right. As long as the members get, you know, get the benefits. Right. And, you know, it's just a really messed up way of thinking about worker empowerment. Right. You know, it's it's one that just says the purpose of a union is to elect leaders to try to get the best deal they can. um, Monetary deal, kind of like, you know, material deal for workers themselves, you know, workers in their contract for their company or for that particular workplace. As opposed to, you know, the history of the labor movement, which has not been, you know, only kind of, you know, make sure that the workers in my, you know, in this particular workplace get theirs, but rather a way of empowering working class people more broadly. It's about about democracy, right? And it's about where power comes from, right? You know, because what happened, you know, what we saw with with the UAW, and this is true for, you know, right across industries, right across unions, is that... You know, while times were good and the the bosses, right, the owners, the, you know, or were kind of willing to share, right, through the, their own good graces and lots of federal legislation and lots of goodwill and things like this, um, as long as they were willing to share, you know, um, some of the, the, you know, the profits of the company, right, and give workers a decent cut, and their only reason why they got the decent cut to begin with is because they organized unions, just to be clear, right? I mean, look, you know, so it, it was long as they, you know, that, you know, there was some a correspondence with that of, okay, if the company does good, the worker's going to do good, right? If the company does better, the worker's going to do better, right? There's going to be some kind of, like, idea about sharing. That was that kind of compact, right? This kind of mythical compact of the 1950s and 60s, right? And, of course, there was, it, it's a myth, right? I mean, 
it wasn't this all rosy good. It was good in a few industries, right? Good work for a, for a while there. We've got the icons of the labor movement, these kind of union leaders that stand out, and there's stories about them and all that kind of stuff. But really, it was the rank-and-file organizing. It was workers on the ground standing together, building their movements is where the power came from. And we always do this in this country, and I'm sure it's it's not just this country, but we, we flip around like the order of operations, right? We mess up the order of operations, right? Um, it's like we see there's leaders of these unions, right, and the unions having good contracts, and then we attribute the good contracts to those leaders, right? You know, it's, it's like this kind of like historical forgetfulness, right? It's like the leaders did not create the power of the movement, the workers did. Right? And that doesn't mean the leaders are insignificant. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it was the power of people standing together. Right? If the leader, if Walter Ruther, right, in the famous sit-downs, if Walter Ruther by himself went in and sat down in a plant, nothing will happen. It was only the willingness of workers to organize together to take over the plants and do the famous sit-down strikes that got the UAW their contracts. Same is true of the miners. Same is true of, you know, the uh, justice for janitors. Same thing. I mean, you can go industry by industry, by teachers, right? It's the organizing of the members is the source of the power. But everything in our society is set up to convince us to forget that. Right, that it's organized power, it's organized people, right, that is the source of the power. So the idea, this holding back the membership idea, right, was like when a leader goes to a bargaining table, right, when a leader goes to the boss at a particular work site, right, and this we could extend this into politics and stuff like this, right, there's that model of, of, of leadership, the model of kind of power, of, of like leader power, <coughs> where it's about how smart and kind of like um, how smart and persuasive that union leader is, right? Right? How the, the, the you know, this, ooh, he's, you know, so has the ability to kind of like run circles around the management with the facts and show them how they're wrong and expose their hypocrisies, right? And they might even, those, those kind of leaders might even then go to the membership and tell them stories of how they, you know, expose the hypocrisy of the members and make the members laugh at how silly the, the, the you know, the, um, uh, the bosses are, right? How ridiculous they are, <coughs> right? And there's a certain kind of catharsis in that, right? But ultimately, it'd be about the kind of, and then, you know, the leaders would go back to their closed room meetings, right? And, um, and the members are not kind of, you know, are, are not part of the old, old process and negotiations process and not part of the organizing process, right? They're just told to sit tight and wait, right? And then when the leaders decide that that's the best deal that they can get, <coughs> that, <coughs> excuse me, then they come out to the members and they try to convince the members that this is the best that they can get. Even when the members are like, this is not a good deal, but they're like, ah, this is the best we could do is, you know, you know, blah, 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 blah. Until the members start to feel like, okay, well, I guess we got to take, I guess we got to take this. And what's, what that's, that, that's meant for decades has been concessions and concessions and concessions and concessions, right? Because ultimately those leaders at the table did not have power. Their persuasive skills was only as good as they had whatever the goodwill of, you know, the bosses. But when have people in power 
ever, right, had the best interest of everybody, like, uh, you know, uh, in their minds. Never. Ultimately, they just want more for themselves. They want more control. They want more power. They want more money. They want more profit. You know, all that kind of stuff. They see themselves as the demigods on this plane, right? I mean, that's where they are. But they somehow, like union leaders, political leaders, whatever it might be, right, convince themselves that they alone, right? It's a freaking Trumpian nonsense. They alone have the skills, right? They alone have this kind of thing. And they don't put energy into organizing. They don't put energy into like building up member power. They put energy into things that they can control, like public relations, like press releases, like graphics, <laughs> right? Good messaging, right? And again, I, I, I'm being, uh, you know, a little bit more cutting here than, than needs be because those things are important, right? I'm not saying they're not important, but they think that that's the end-all be-all, things that they can control, right? And then they could message to the public and they could message to their members, right? But what it's led to is concession to concession. We've seen this kind of like, you know, this, the gutting out of kind of organized labor, Right. And some of that has to do with, you know, what's happened in terms of global agreements, which I would argue is also a function of the lack of investment in organizing worker power. Right. But that's been true at the UAW. I mean, the UAW has been on a decline for like decades. Right. They have. Uh, let me see if I could find this one statistic. Um Oh, I wish I had. I, th I thought I had the, the one article up that does it. But uh, I'll give you one. Let me see. Where is this here? Just to give you an idea. Okay. So here's one of the things that they won in the Ford contract, right? UAW won in the Ford contract. Is they get 25% general wage increase over the 4.5-year life of the contract. A 25% wage increase. Now, if you remember, they were asking for 40, right? Because they're smart going in. 40 would be what they deserve, right? But, you know, if you're, you're a union organizer or you're a union leader and you're a negotiator, you know that, look, you're going to say what you deserve and you're going to get as close as you possibly can to that. But ultimately, in contract negotiations, there's negotiations. But why does that matter? 25% general wage increase over the 4.5 year life. So in comparison, the union secured 23% in total wage increases in the 21 years between 20, 2001 and 2022, right? So in other words, for 21 years, there was a 23% increase, like a, in a percentage a year in wages. Meanwhile, profits rocketed. Like, this is why Sean Fain and the others were basically saying that we deserve a 40% increase in our pay. Why? Because that's what management has got. That's what the owners have got. That's what they have extracted from our work. But the company did the same thing that companies always do, or managers always do, bosses always do. They say, we don't have any money. There's nothing we can do, Right. Do you want us to go out of business, right? And just the fact that they're just making money hand over fist and putting it in their own pockets, 
belies like the words coming out of their mouth, right? I mean, it just basically says that they're lying. They're messaging right back. They're using the message of despair, the message of Tina. There's, you know, there is no alternative. The message of, oh, it's not our fault. It's some sort of force of nature. And then for decades, like I said, the union leaders, because they had not invested in, in the organized members, said, oh, okay, I guess the best we're going to do, we're going to get something. By contrast, the whole idea about holding back the membership is like, you know, I had this image in my head. It's like, if you're at the bargaining table or any kind of negotiation, right, you think about where the real power comes. If you believe that power emanates from an organized workforce or organized community, whatever we're going to talk about, organized from the people, right? Then a leader steps forward and they kind of got their arms. You can't really see it in the thing, but you kind of got, you got like hundreds or thousands of people behind you, right? With your kind of arms outstretched, kind of like holding them back, right? And those members are organized. They're ready to strike. They're ready to go. They're pissed off, Right. And the, the, the leader basically gives the bosses an alternative. Right. Or, you know, ultimatum, if you will. But he gives you here's your choices. Right. You can negotiate reasonably based upon facts, based upon real statistics, not your kind of messaging, your pretense about, you know, being poor or, you know, being in crisis. Or I can lift up my arms and let these folks at you. Right. In other words, let them strike. Right. You can we can do this like reasonable human beings, like what this is supposed to be in a contract negotiation, or we can shut everything down. As Rick Smith has always said, the most powerful tool in a workers uh, like uh, workers have. Right. Is to stick their hands in their pockets and do nothing. Right. Is because the, we are the ones who create the wealth. We are the ones who create the product, the service, whatever you want to be. The same is true we see with the SAG after strikes, right? It's like the managers, the owners of the studios are not the ones that create the content. <clears throat> They're not the ones who do the filming, the set building. They're not the ones who are, do the writing. They're not the ones who do the acting. They're just the ones who extract it. Right? <clears throat> so anyways, you know, that, that's that whole, whole idea. And then what the UAW did here is they did the holding back the membership. They spent, right, new leadership came in and basically said enough of this behind backroom deals where we're just basically telling the members to kind of like, you know, hope for the best. We're going to invest in organizing and we're going to put more responsibility on <coughs> um, kind of on local committees to basically to help their organizing and, and to, to, to generate kind of creative ideas and to give them a little bit more autonomy over how they do that, Right. And all the while basically saying, we're going to get a good contract, but the only way you get a good, good contract is to organize and be prepared to strike. Right? It's the inoculation move, right? Is that the way that you kind of prevent... Because, look, look, striking is not easy. Right? I mean, there's real consequences, right? You stop getting paid in things like this, right? So people are generally going to have a lot of fears. They're going to worry about losing their job. They're going to worry about a whole bunch of other stuff. The only way you do that, the only way you combat that is that you prepare, Right? That's why UAW does the test picketing, right? Get people out and see what it's like. Because that's not part of our normal routine. So it gets us out of our little comfort zone a little bit. Right? 
And then they start doing it and they start to exercise their own power and kind of organize their own, their own protest. And that's what they did. And they practiced this, the picketing. They had organized, they had mobilized. And then Sean Fain made good on his words. Right? He said, this is what we're going to do. And here's a deadline. When the deadline come, they struck, <laughs> right? It's not a fake deadline. It's not an idle threat. It's not about rattling swords, right? It's about saying, okay, here's a deadline and I'm, we're going to show you that we're going to stick to it. And the, you know, again, there was a lot of talk about, well, is their strategy going to be um, going to be useful this year uh, or this time around, right? Because you don't remember when they went on strike, they didn't just strike the entire industry. I said, okay. We're going to start low. We're going to we're going to pick a we're going to pick one from each of the big three that we're negotiating with. First of all, we're not going to negotiate. We're going to negotiate all at once. We're going to negotiate with everybody at the same time. We're all all in the all in the same thing, right? And they're going to pit them all like against one another. And we're going to pick this plant from you, this plant from from you, and then this plant from you. And that's how our strike is going to begin. And boom, they called for it. Workers put down their tools, walked off the job, and went on strike on those plants. Everyone else continued to work. And at first, there's some questions. Well, is this him just playing games or whatever? Nope. How do we know it wasn't? he wasn't just playing games? Well, because a week later, right, comes up, or a couple weeks later, however it was, they say, oh, well, guess what? They're still not doing anything. <coughs> they're still not bargaining in good faith. So here's some more plants. They're going to walk off the job. Stand up and strike. Stand up and strike. And then more and more. And now we're at the point where... These big three automakers were still not negotiating good faith, right? So they said, okay, now we're going to make it really hurt because you people still don't get it. So now we're going after the most profitable, the biggest and most profitable plants are all the three. And Ford was like, oh, no, we're done. <laughs> That's it. Nope, nope, nope. We don't want you to shut down our uh, the, our biggest like F one fifty factory in the country. Nope, 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 because that's our biggest money maker. And they came to an agreement. So here's 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 what oh, what came out of this agreement with Ford. I already mentioned the twenty five percent general wage increase over the contract. Restoration of the cost of living adjustment, which ties wage increases to inflation, right? Here you go. It, it was suspended in 2009 amid the bankruptcies at GM and Chrysler, right? So if you remember, the federal government stepped in there. This is kind of what you need to remember about, you know, Obama. Obama, the one who kind of basically said that, you know, when workers are going to strike, he's going to put on a comfortable pair of shoes and join them on the strike line. He never did. Biden did. Obama never did that. And then when they were doing the bank out, uh, the bailouts, right, they bailed out the auto industry, if you recall, right, in the wake of the financial collapse in 2008. And then part of what one of the conditions of that was that there was also going to be some austerity members uh, measures imposed upon workers with no end with no end cap. And one of them was basically, you know, going to take away this uh, uh, the coal increases, which basically says as inflation goes up, you're going to hit those. Uh, you're going to have your wages go up. Right. Just to meet inflation. That's been reinstated now in this contract. Also, the elimination of wage tiers at Ford, Sterling, Axel, and Rawsonville plants in Michigan with lower-tier workers at these facilities seeing an immediate, check this out, the lower-tier workers at those facilities are going to see an immediate 85% raise upon the contract's negotiation or ratification. 
right? Because there was a contract in place that said, okay, here's these workers that have been around for a while, right? They're going to be up on this tier, right? And they're going to get paid more. But new workers that are coming, we're going to we're going to we're going to have them at a lower rate. They're going to get paid less. They're going to have fewer benefits, right? And so we're going to have a two tier workforce, right? And this is happening across you know across all industries. Nope, they got got rid of that. And then 85% raised to bring those um, those lower tier workers up to the standard. 85. Can you imagine being one of those workers right now? And you know you're going to get an 85% raise? Unbelievable. A reduction in the amount of, uh, of time new hires must wait to reach a maximum wage levels. They're going to move it from eight years to three years. And that's how what it was before the major union concessions in 2007 before the financial collapse. So you can't blame that one on the financial collapse. That one was because of union concessions and a lack of investment in organizing. So they organize, here you go. Okay, we gave that concession. Nope, we're, go we're gonna claw it back, right? We're going back to the way things used to be. Three years and then you hit your, um, your norm. 150% wage increase for temp workers over the life of the contract. 150% wage increase for temp workers of the life of the contract. And approximately 68% increase to the starting wage and roughly 33% increase to the top wage. All Ford workers will see an immediate 11% increase on ratification. Browning, the VP said, that was quote, almost, almost equal to all of the wage increases since 2007 combined. An increased retirement benefits for workers with pensions and to workers with 401ks. And for the first time, the right to strike over plant closures, a key UAW demand to help protect auto workers' jobs. This is awesome. Now, these, now let's be clear. These are just the details that were released, that were talked about um, in the, the Wednesday announcement. Um, these are not the full details of the contract. Right. So as always is important to do is like as amazing as all this sounds, you wait for the details to come out when the members are going to vote on the actual text. And we're going to find out more about this contract, find out where there were trade offs, if there were and um, to what extent are there. One of the things that was won in one of the other cases, I want to say with GM was GM, a commitment that their battery plants, because you remember, we talked about this on the show several weeks ago. The battery plants, which are going to be absolutely critical in the switch over to electric vehicles, right? We're in these kind of like, you know, these partnership agreements with other companies. And so therefore, we're considered outside of the UAW contract, right? So therefore, those workers could get paid like crap. UAW said, no, no, we want them in. We want those people to be part of the contract, not outside of it. And they'll be get the same that other UAW members are going to be. And the GM case, they got that. We'll see what happens with Ford and other stuff too, but it's good. I mean, just this is amazing. As they're writing in these times, illustrating how the innovative tactic of simultaneously striking at all three automakers pits the companies against each other. The pressure is now on GM and Stellantis to also reach a deal as Ford strikers will return to work. Right. Because basically they're saying now like, OK, now Ford is going to be back up to production. Ford is going to be able to get its vehicles out there. And GM and Stellantis is now now and they're in, in a competitive chase. Right. Because they're like, crap, you know, if we don't settle soon, 
we're not producing our cars and Ford's going to run away with a uh, larger the profit share this week or this year. Pretty amazing. <clears throat> so anyways, I wanted to, you know, spend a little time on that because, you know, I think it, it's been so incredibly instructive, right? Um, about what real organized power looks like, right? Now we're going to see what's going to happen. You know, I, I, I've been, uh, one of the things I've been working on getting is getting somebody from uh, SAG after um, because I want to uh, you know hear more about what's happening in that in that strike and where things are right, from the Writers Guild and SAG after to talk about that because you know in in some ways though those workers right um, in SAG after right the writers and the set design all that kind of stuff there are they're in a more precarious situation than some of the UAW workers right and like in a sense a lot of their work is really piecemeal. Um, you have huge discrepancies in kind of the membership from, uh, you know, people like, you know, whatever, George Clooney, kind of way at the top, or Scarlett Johansson, way at the top, um, <clears throat> to your kind of your bit actors, right? Or your kind of background actors or your commercial actors, right? Um, who are just trying to, you know, make a living, right? <clears throat> just get by from week to week. Um, George Clooney actually had, uh, this is kind of a side point, had an interesting um, suggestion on that port. So basically in the sag after contract, there's a cap on, on, um, on union contributions, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's like this de what, what the Democrats always do. They do this, this really messed up crap. So what's happened with Social Security, same kind of deal. They say that, okay, everybody pays whatever, let's say 1%, 1 1.5% of, uh, um, of their paycheck for dues, right? Um, even 3%, whatever it might be, right? It depends on your union. Um, so let's just say it's a, like a, a 2%. We'll just take the middle. It's like 2% union dues, right? So that comes out of your contract. So if I'm, you know, if I get a paycheck that's for like $1,000, right? I mean, 2% is not very much, right? You know, it's down here. But the more money you make, right, the larger that actual real dollar amount is, right? So instead of being like, you know, 20 bucks, it's going to be 200 bucks or $2,000, right? And there's a cap on, like, at what point does that stop increasing, right? So you get up to, like, whatever. I don't even know what – I can't remember what it is. It's like, say if you get up to, like, okay, like $100,000, right? Because you're making, I don't know, like – truckloads full of money, right? You're one of us star actors. And you get up to $100,000 and they cap it at that. Say, okay, no more increase. You get to keep all the rest of it. And George Clooney, it's not just George Clooney. I want to say, um, I don't think it's Scarlett Johansson. I think it's, um, uh, it's killing me. But, you know, basically have come up and basically said, you know, let's take the cap off, right? To make sure that we can sustain the strike. Let's take the cap off, right? You know, and Clooney's basically saying, look, I'm making whatever, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, right? It's not going to hurt me <laughs> to pay more dues. As a matter of fact, we should do more to protect the industry. We should pay more because we've been the benef beneficiaries of the system. So we should make sure the people coming up are taken care of, right? It's kind of a cool move. Anyways, that's that's a little bit outside of the range where we're going to talk today. Um. The other thing I want to talk about a little bit today is the, uh, you know, our elect election uh, denying new Speaker of the House. Um, as we know, it's been an absolute uh, circus in the Republican-dominated and led uh, um, House of Representatives. They've been unable to elect a new Speaker after they, um, you know, ousted a Speaker, um, their own Speaker, um, because they didn't like him anymore. Because he they 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 upset him too much and 
he wasn't extreme enough, like for the you know the 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 far right, the Freedom Caucus, and even the the MAGA extreme Freedom Caucus people, right? So you know they went through their list, right? They got rid of Kevin McCarthy, and then you know we, we saw the whole drama with Jim Jordan. You know they're kind of like, hey, they they voted to put forward you know a guy who protected sex offenders uh but you know nope nope he couldn't get elected and one after the other this has been bopping around mike johnson was put forward and most people right um who pay any you know pay cursory like attention to politics don't know who mike johnson is right um he's relatively obscure he's from louisiana um he is in the GOP Republican leadership, but you know he just kind of keeps a little bit of a, of a of a low profile. Well, he got their support and he actually won a vote. Right, um, he basically got enough support of Republicans to um, get him elected. The Guardian did a great piece uh, about who this guy is. Because uh, one of the things he's known for mostly is that, you know, he was one of the people that um, was, you know, helping craft a strategy for um, the election denier, right? So Johnson, uh, we all know of the, everyone's going to support what Trump says, but Johnson was kind of even more involved um, than a lot of other people. So he not only did he, this is from the Garden, did he voice uh, support for Trump's conspiracy theory that voting machines were rigged? Later, he was one of 147 Republicans to object to um, results in key states, even after a, pro, a pro-Trump mob attacked Congress on January 6th, right? Johnson also authored an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in a case in which Texas sought to have swing state results thrown out. According to the New York Times, House Republican lawyers said Johnson's brief was unconstitutional. Nevertheless, he persuaded 125 colleagues to sign it using some tactics that others thought heavy-handed. Another thing. He was a spokesperson for a hate group, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, Johnson worked for the Alliance Defending Freedom, which was designated by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an extremist, as a U.S. extremist group. According to the, uh, the SPLC, the ADF has, quote, supported the recriminalization of sexual acts between consenting LGBTQ plus adults in the United States and criminalization abroad, defended state-sanctioned sterilization of trans people abroad, contended that LGBTQ plus people are more likely to engage in pedophilia, and claimed that homosexual agenda will destroy Christianity and society. This is the guy who uh, he worked for. The Alliance, or this is the organization that um, Mike Johnson worked for, Alliance Defending Freedom. That was before he entered politics. He opposes LGBTQ rights, as you should be kind of clear from that. Um, again, from The Guardian, in state politics and at the national level, Johnson has worked to claw back gains made by LGBTQ plus Americans in their fight for equality. In 2016, as he ran for Congress, he told the Louisiana Baptist message that he had, quote, been out on the front lines of the culture war, defending religious freedom, the sanctity of human life, and biblical values, including the defense of traditional marriage and other ideals like these when they've been under assault. He has since led, um, and this is unquote, he has since led efforts by the national Don't Say Gay Bill regarding uh, the teaching of LGBTQ issues in schools and is also opposed to gender affirmation, uh, affirming care in children. Another one, he's stringently anti-abortion. He has maintained, uh, let's see, he's, he has co-sponsored bills um, basically for a nationwide um, abortion ban. Right? He wants to cut Social Security and Medicare. Right? Um, 
his cuts are widely kind of regarded as you know, something you can't do. Um, Johnson is one of the ones who is actively wanting to cut those programs. He is an advocate for so-called covenant marriage, right? In other words, once you're married, once you're married, there is no getting out of it. So this, this is, again, from The Guardian. When he, was, uh, when he married his wife, Kelly, in 1999, the couple agreed to a covenant marriage, a conservative Christian idea that makes it harder to divorce. The Johnsons promoted the idea on ABC's Good Morning America. He is also a climate skeptic. In 2017, Johnson told voters in his oil-rich home state, quote, the climate is changing, but the question is, is it being caused by natural cycles over the span of Earth's history, or is it changing because we drive SUVs? I don't believe in the latter. I don't think that's the primary driver. He's been called an energy champion by the um, American Energy Alliance, which is a right-wing group that has defended fossil fuel use. Right? And the lists go on. Right? I thought I'd play you just one bit of sound here. Um, from This is from his appearance on Fox News, right? Um, and uh, he was basically being interviewed. You know, this is a glowing uh, promo video, basically, for Fox News. Um, get Johnson on there and to kind of humanize him and to kind of uh, uh, make him seem like a reasonable human being. So this is what um, he told Fox News um, about when he's asked by people about what his views are. Um, and this is pretty much straightforward. Here we go. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. And so I no someone There you go, right? <clears throat> that's my worldview. That's what I bring to legislation. Right. And let's be clear, it's not just the Bible on the shelf. Right. It's the specific kind of Bible. Um, there's been multiple articles that have been coming out kind of pointing to his the the language that he uses is consistent with Christian nationalist language. Right. Um, so th that's that's the guy. Right. That's the guy right there. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> if you thought things were going to get better. With just kind of like, oh, we're going to replace the leader. Maybe, let's hope, right? Because everybody wants to hope. Everybody wants to hope so bad. We want to hope so bad that, you know, maybe the next guy's going to be more reasonable. But he's not. They're just get more extreme. Crazy, crazy. I thought, okay, so so what else we got? So Amazon, and talked about a little bit about Amazon. But uh, so here, this is from CNBC. In topping an anal uh, analyst estimates for its third quarter results on Thursday, Amazon reported an operating margin of 7.8%. That's like the highest profit percentage, basically. Um, that's the highest since it reached its record of 8.2% in early 2021. Why is that significant? Early 2021, you remember? Remember early 2021? That's at the height of the pandemic when everybody was relying upon a kind of home delivery to basically get basic staples, right? And Amazon, again, instead of making sure its workers were taken care of, nope, it reached, it reaped record profits, right, in 2021. So this is like second high since then, right? Um, and how do they do that? Well, after um, Jeff Bezos kind of like stepped away from kind of like, you know, helming the, uh, the company to fork it, excuse me, to focus more on his space travels. Um, um, Andy Jassy um, <clears throat> is now the new CEO. 
And this is kind of what he does. This is from CNBC. Say, Jassy, who took to the helm in mid-2021, has been laser-focused on trimming costs across the company for over a year, eliminating 27,000 jobs since last fall, axing some riskier bets, and reshaping Amazon's fulfillment network to emphasize speed and efficiency. Suddenly, Amazon is a profit machine, right? Of course, you have fewer workers doing more. Yep. In its third quarter earnings report on Thursday, Amazon reported an operating margin of 7.8%, the highest since it reached record 8.2%, like I said. The company's operating margin, which is the profit left after subtracting all the costs to operate the business, was 2% a year ago and has historically hovered in single dig digits. And Bezos was often perfectly happy with running a negative margin on occasion. Right? That just gives you a sense of kind of where things are at. So... You have that on the one hand, right? We, we saw all the stories about Amazon drivers having to pee in bottles, right? To be able to kind of stay on task. We see increasing uh, like stresses on Amazon. So also this week, this new report gets um, put out by um, <clears throat> an organization. Uh, let me just get the name of the organization. A new report by uh, the Center for Urban and Economic Development. Um, and it's called Pain Points, Data on Work Intensity, Monitoring, and Health at Amazon Warehouses, right? <clears throat> Here's some of the key findings of this report. The key findings are, one, 41% of workers report being injured while working at an Amazon warehouse. 51% of the company for more than three years have been injured, right? Um, so, for example, if you've been there for more than three years, you're, the rate of, of, of injury is higher, Right? 41% of workers report being injured at work. 69% have had to take unpaid time off due to pain or exhaustion from the, uh, working at the company in the past month. 34% have had to do, um, do so three or, three or more times. 69% have had to take unpaid time off because the intensity of work is so much. 52% feel burned out from their work at Amazon. And among those working at the company more than three years, 60% report feeling burned out. 41% <clears throat> always or most of the time feel a sense of pressure to work faster. And another 30% 30, 30 said they sometimes do. Injury, 53% and burnout, 78% are, 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 are elevated among those feeling pressure to work faster. 60% um, experience more workplace monitoring at Amazon than at previous jobs. 9% experience less monitoring, and 17% say the level's about the same. 60% say the field is more monitoring. So what's the relationship here? <clears throat> you basically cut jobs. You tell people to work faster. You surveil them. You keep them kind of like consciously in states of stress. And you reap more profits, and you do it off the backs of your workers. Cut jobs, you make conditions worse, more people are going to get hurt. <clears throat> Center for, Econ uh, for Urban Economic Development, who produced this report, is from, uh, they're uh, based out of the University of Illinois in Chicago. <clears throat> they do this, this is kind of what they do, right? Just gives you a sense of kind of like, you know, this is where the profit comes from, right? And Amazon's going to get celebrated in the media. They go, oh, look at all this. Look how much Amazon's making so much money. Always remember, their money is in direct relationship to the conditions at work. Right? Especially those big organizations. <clears throat> Crazy. <clears throat> We've seen, you know, I, I decided, you know, 
There's enough reporting going on right now about what's happening in uh, Israel and Gaza. It's devastating. I, I talked about this, I think, on the show last week pretty extensively. Or it, was like, um, it, just, it just wrecks me every day looking at this because you see there's nothing good here. Um, I've also said on the show that I don't feel great about the way that the conversation is happening. I, I don't, or no conversation. <clears throat> Let me be more blunt. I think some of the kind of reactive politics or reactionary politics on the left are problematic too. Um, I'm, I will never walk away from the fact that basically Palestinians have been subjected to apartheid an apartheid regime for generations now. That it is a, as I agree 100% with what they, you know, the UN shows the World Health Organization called the largest, the world's largest open air prison in Gaza. <clears throat> the conditions among Palestinians are just, are just, are, are, are horrific. <clears throat> now, does that, <clears throat> yeah, the a UN Secretary, um, <clears throat> the, uh, Secretary General of the UN, <clears throat> excuse me, was criticized this week and <clears throat> calls for him to resign because he had the gall to acknowledge that this recent, the recent attack, the Ham Hamas attack and all the kind of stuff that lit up that existed in a context, right? <clears throat> and that if we're going to solve this, we got to, we got to deal with the whole context. He was very, very explicit about saying that just because there's a context, just because there's an apartheid regime, just because the, that is not permission for Hamas to slaughter 1,400 Israelis. That kind of, no, it's not, it's not, it's not even an explanation for it, right? But we also know that oppression breeds extremism. So the solution is not going to be more repression, more destruction, more devastation. But that's precisely what we saw, we see the Israeli government doing right now. I mean, the New York Times just released these comparisons, right? There's new uh, satellite data. It was like the before and after the bombings. It's just like huge sections of cities just gone. And that's not just in the area that Israel basically forcibly displaced all, the, all these Palestinian families who lived up there. Over a million people fleeing their homes so they won't get killed. <clears throat> it was also in the south, also along the coast. And I look at it, you know, I said I wasn't going to talk so much about it, but <clears throat> yeah, I just look at it and I'm just like, this is... start taking sides in this thing, and then this is, I, I don't know, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I, I don't want to use this as a cop-out or something like that, but maybe just me, like me getting old or whatever. I don't know. <clears throat> but sharpening the conflict is not going to be a solution right now, I don't think. This is where, like, like, humanity at its forefront, right? Being like, like human 
<clears throat> first <clears throat> over governments is the only way out. What Naomi Klein said in the, you know, I read, you know, what a week and a half ago or whatever it was, I read her, her piece in the, in the Guardian where basically says, side with the children over the guns always. <clears throat> and, you know, now, and so you see these, you know, you, you see protesters who are pro, basically protesting on, saying on college campuses and different communities that are kind of in support of, of Palestinians, right? Basically saying, stop the bombing. We need a ceasefire here. Stop the destruction. Stop the killing of Palestinians, right? <clears throat> yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> right? But it, it, it's it, it it's like we got to have. I, I mean, I don't know how do you have that. How do you basically frame that other than saying we have to just stop the freaking killing? We've got to, you know, we got to go right at the freaking hate and the and the roots of it. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, again, I, I don't think there's any easy solution there. I mean, there were video, and this is going to make things worse, right? So <clears throat> when you have uh, a whole bunch of videos started emerging, right, of at least as this is what they say they are, right? Um, I think it was like the Daily Beast was, was had a story on this where <clears throat> you had Israelis posting mocking videos of Palestinians to TikTok, Right where they would blacken out their teeth and 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 dress up like kind of like poor Palestinians, dumb Palestinians, and all that kind of stuff, mocking them as these bombings are going on, right? And sometimes with their kids, right? I mean, that's like that's like wildfire. It's just like that's not justified nor is extremism from Palestinians. It's certainly not the wanton slaughter of, like, of, of civilians that Hamas carried out. And now you're seeing people, you know, like, like, like some Israeli-backed organizations pulling out, um, like, funds from universities, right, and then calls to kind of, like, suppress the students and, the, the, you know, I mean... This is really, really effed up stuff. And, you know, there's a there's a uh, an article that just was recently out, too, as well. Let me see if I can pull this one up. Uh, I know I have it right here. This is from the New York Times today, too, as well. Um, the uh, Democrats splinter over Israel as young, diverse left rages at Biden. Now, of course, the New York Times has got it, you know, and the editorial folks there have got their own little um, agendas. Um, but this is this is kind of what the um, what the lead is in the article. And, you know, the political implications for Biden is not are, is not like the most important part about this story. But it, nonetheless, you see the impact. So here's the, the what the Times says: the Democratic Party's years-long unity behind Democrat or behind, behind President Biden is beginning to erode over his steadfast support of Israel and its escalating war with the Palestinians, with a left-leaning coalition of young voters and people of color showing more discontent toward him than at any point since he was first elected. 
from Capitol Hill to Hollywood in labor unions and liberal activist groups and on college campuses and high school cafeterias, a raw emotional divide over the conflict is convulsing liberal America. While moderate Democrats and critics on the right have applauded Mr. Biden, Mr. Biden's backing of Israel, he faces new resistance from an emerging faction of his party that views the Palestinian cause as an extension of the racial and social justice movements that dominated American politics in the summer of 2020. In protests, open letters, and staff revolts and walkouts, liberal Democrats are demanding that Mr. Biden break with decades-long American policy and calls for a ceasefire. The political power of the Israeli skeptics within the party is untested. With more than a year remaining until the 2024 presidential election, their effort has been fractious and disorganized, and they have little agreement over how much blame to lay at Mr. Biden's feet or whether to punish him next November if he ignores these pleas. And yet, Mr. Biden is already struggling with low Democratic enthusiasm, and it would not take much to, uh, of a slip in support from voters who backed him in 20. So you can see how the narrative is being set up. But uh, nonetheless, it's true that divide exists, right? <clears throat> but even in here, you know, again, some of this is, you know, I, 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 I have to say, I think the the reporting here is is pretty decent. Um, but you know, it's always. It's always important to make clear that in many of these protests, right, I'm not going to say all of them, but in many of these protests, right, they are not anti-Israeli, even as they show opposition to the Israeli government, right? You know, and, and, and you got, you know, there's this test. Patricia Roberts Miller wrote that book, Demagoguery and Democracy. We had her on the show and we talked about this, right? One of the rules when you kind of want to prevent an, uh, demagoguery is that you want to absolutely make sure that there's, say, reciprocity in argumentation. So, for example, we saw Israeli government officials come out and equate the Palestinian people and call them all animals. We're dealing with animals. And basically hold them responsible. Because years ago, people in Gaza voted for Hamas. Then Hamas got rid of elections. And that Hamas is, by all accounts, has also like been like repressing, oppressing people in Gaza too as well, because they are the ones with the weapons, right? They become more and more dictatorial within within the Gaza Strip, right? So, the Israeli officials says, "Well, they, everyone is responsible because they didn't oust them. They didn't rise up and get rid of Hamas. So, therefore, everybody." Women, children, everyone are somehow responsible and therefore justifies the bombing. And with absolutely, like, correctly, people came out and were in direct opposition to that. And we know that that's, that, that framework is the framework of war crimes. Right? You use collect, it's called collective punishment, right? That you punish civilians, everybody. Right? You hold everybody of a people accountable for the maybe even if like the, the, the unthinkable acts like Hamas did of, of um, say either people in leadership or people from that country. That's a war crime. Just like with Timothy McVeigh, right? If you ever read, you know, like what that guy, that dude was thinking, Timothy McVeigh, when he went and he um, committed the Oklahoma City bombing, bombing and killed all those people there and all those kids, his justification, right? was that the people who worked in that building, it was a federal office building, 
right? We're working for the government. And doesn't matter if they were a secretary or a custodian or a, 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 uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Like a, a, a teacher, daycare teacher, preschool teacher, didn't matter because by taking that paycheck and supporting it, they are supporting the government, which he was anti-government. So he was holding all those people accountable for what he saw as the crimes of the federal government. That's collective punishment. That's why we call it terrorism. That's why we call it a war crime when it's committed against other nations. So people are right to come out and call that. But then we've got to also then make sure the flip side, right, is true. That we've got to be careful then about our language when we talk about Israel. Right? We've got to remember that there were millions of people in the streets of Israel rising up against the opposition against Netanyahu. Right? And I know we can get into the polls about what are people saying and all that kind of stuff. But to say that everyone in Israel, everyone that is kind of wants a Jewish homeland, is the same thing as the extremist Israeli government is also about collective identification and potentially collective punishment. And that's what gets us to the anti-Semitism, which is the reason, and it is a self-justifying thing. And this, you know, again, Naomi Klein pointed this, like, this is what the Zionists will, will make use of because of that long history of anti-Semitism, because of the Holocaust. When people, when, you know, Germany and Austria, the Nazis were basically, were willing to carry out exterminationist policies. Right? This is not in their heads. It actually happened. We look at the pogroms of, like, you know, in Russia. We look at the long, like, centuries of history of oppression of Jewish people. You know this. So you can't just kind of like, oh, well, look, all of them think this thing. No. And I get, you know, watching this, these, these debates, watching these protests kind of unfold, it, it just gets really disconcerting to see it go in a potentially really bad way. Because that will only feed the extremism. It will only feed the um, conflict. But then <clears throat> people will die. Anyways, so much for not talking about that today. <laughs> God. Um, yeah, let's switch over to little things that is uh, kind of going on a little bit closer to home here. What did I do with my... Uh, okay, let's bring it back up. <clears throat> So I do want to talk about, um, as to kind of close out for today, um, well, we had the mass shooting in Maine, which we know we're going through these same things. Then we have Governor uh, Ron DeSantis coming out and basically saying, yeah, we just need to make sure we have people have more guns and then we're just going to institutionalize more people that um, against their will if uh, their family thinks that they should be because of mental illness. And there's all sorts of problems with that. <clears throat> but it's devastating what happened in Maine. Um <clears throat> Here, I'm not going to go too much into that today, but again, I'm, the news is flooded with it here. But I, man, I feel, I feel for him. So, and this week, uh, just news in kind of our own backyards. Once again, we have the uh, Penridge School District passed it, uh, passed their anti-trans policy in the name of protecting girls' sports. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, here we go. So uh, that was the big thing on the agenda that they were going to pass this. There was going to be nobody who was going to stand in opposition with it. Even the so-called moderates on the board pretty much voted for it. Um, 
So, you know, those folks who want to elevate Joan Cullen or, you know, other members of that board kind of um, did this, they, you know, nope, they all voted for it pretty much. <clears throat> I think maybe one or two people said no, but <clears throat> whatever. Part of what became interesting um, in this is that several parents came up and not only did they speak about the, um, they speak about, you know, against this, this policy, right? You know, the, the policy uh, kind of that has to create a problem in order to kind of um, say that it's responding to anything because there was no problem. People were not having these issues beforehand, <clears throat> but whatever. This Everybody's aware, like for the most part, that this is a, you know, this is in order to kind of, you know, fan the flames of the culture war ahead of the uh, November 7th election um, to get everybody really juiced up to show up at the polls. That's what's going on. Um. But in the midst of that, there was an interesting discussion. And Jenny Stevens does a great job of kind of uh, focusing in on this um, in her article in The Beacon from um, on the, the 24th. In her articles, the Penridge School Board passes discriminatory sex-based sports policy and then deals with blowback from RTK um, court ruling. So Darren Lawson, we talked about this in the show last week, um, kind of mentioned it again today. Darren Lawson, who was uh, basically sued the school board, um, uh, for its book banning policies, finding that they basically they were kind of banning books without um, public scrutiny. They were violating their own policies. They were removing books, and they were actually actively manipulating data that they gave back through right to no requests um, to make it appear that they weren't doing what they were doing. Anyways, that went to court, <clears throat> and Darren Lawson won that lawsuit, and now that uh, the Penridge School Board um, and school district has to turn over those records to basically show Darren Lawson basically what, what actually happened, right? And I'm sure more is going to come out of that now once those records are released. <clears throat> the interesting, most interesting part about the, um, in terms of organizing around stuff, is that Kevin Foster began, the, uh, began that night, right? Um, and he came, you know, talked about what the school board is doing and how much it is costing taxpayers because of, because of what they're doing, because those policies that they're forcing through and so on, <clears throat> right? And he said, for example, tonight the board is writing another check to our high-priced Harrisburg law firm for $140,000, bringing their two-month total to, to uh, $300,000, right? And... There's also a, a bunch of money that the school the school district has had to pay in right to no requests, right? Because that takes time, a lot of time. So, Megan Bannis Clemens basically did this like this, you know, the switcheroo move, right? She said the very people, and this I, and this is of course what the the Penridge GOP is running with right now. Um, the very people <clears throat> she claims, right, the very people that are complaining about the school board spending all this money are the very people who were submitting all these right to no requests and are suing the school district, like, and causing the school district to have to pay all this these funds, right? And it was remarkable. And I'm sitting there watching it. You know, we did a little kind of a, a live peek on the sh uh, on the school board meeting this past Monday. And I'm sitting there like, I'm just like, I can't believe that. She basically, the reason why, the only reason why that the, the school board has had to kind of uh, deal with these right to no requests is because they've been denying things. Is they've been, they've been, haven't been transparent. And they've been, they've been refused to answer questions, right? And they've been manipulating data, right? But all this other kinds of stuff, right? And so, but you saw Megan Bannis Clement launch into this tirade against people who are issuing their right to no request and people who have sued the district, right? And this is where I got to say is, 
you know, again, I'm always cautious, you know, to be really clear that Joan Cullen is not a friend of, uh, of public schools in many ways. Um, but at least, at least she's, for the most part, she's concerned about process and policy, right? And one of the things I want to see if I get the quote for here, here, um, <clears throat> There is a right to know. I thought I had it highlighted. So here it is. This is kind of what comes down to this. Several members of the audience are basically saying, what are you hiding behind all this stuff and the right to know, right? What is it? You know, blah, 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 blah. After Megan Bennis comes and says this. Then Ron Wirtz says this, right? Say, if we had a modicum or just a bit of transparency, we wouldn't have to do this, Director Ron Wirtz said. If you don't communicate with the public, they have a right to know that, um, they have the right to know that, and they have a right to file those grievances, so I disagree with that. And then this is Joan Collins say. Uh, or no, he says, uh, it's stunning to me to admonish the public for submitting right to no requests, not only because of what Ron just said, this is Colin said, Ron just said, which is, which is that you're not being transparent. The public really has no choice but to submit those right to no requests, Colin pointed out. She said that she and three other board members, um, with the assistance of legal counsel, had to make multiple requests to obtain board information that they were entitled to have, including details around the Vermillion contract that they have been withheld from them. And quote, you are not forthcoming, you are not transparent, you are not being honest with the people, Colin said. Thank goodness she said that. So that was on the record because, of course, this is outside of public comment. And so Megan Bennis Clemens can just frame whatever the hell she wants, whatever nonsense she wants. But that's the whole point, right? The whole point of the right, these were not just like frivolous right to know requests. The board was, was actively withholding information from the public and from other board members. And so the only way to get access to that information was to file these right to know requests. And in the case of the book banning policy, to sue the district. So the onus of the responsibility is on the existing board, is on the extremists that dominate that board. Right? It's like saying like, Oh, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I'm just trying, <laughs> trying to think of another, like, example of, like, <clears throat> I just think it's, like, so, like, just just so amazing. Like, um, um, it's like, okay, my house is leaking, right? The, there's a hole in the roof, right? And the rain is coming in my house. So I'm going to call a plumber, right? And I'll call, I'm going to call the plumber, and this is a really bad analogy, but I'm going to do it anyways. But I'm going to call the plumber, right, to come here, and I'm going to call the roofer to come fix everything to make sure that this is, uh, this is taken care of. And then I get a big bill in the mail, right? And I get the big bill in the mail, and I could sit there and say, like, uh, you know, I could say, oh, man, I'm really, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of upset that it's been raining so much, right? It's been raining so much because of freaking climate change, right, that it's, it's kind of like causes problem in my roof and all this stuff. And then somebody comes like, well, no. The, the rain didn't cause it. The roof, the hole in the roof didn't cause it. You had to pay that much money because you called the plumber and you called the roofer. So it's your fault. <laughs> it's like, but there was a hole in the roof, right? You don't have a choice, right? It's like this. If you're lying to the public and you are a public official, you're the cause of the problem. 
But the, oh my God, the, the Megan Bannis Clemens victimhood, like, you know, circus is just amazing. It's amazing how you could, no matter what comes your way, you're always going to position yourself as the victim. And some vast conspiracy. God, God, if the, if the, if the left had only been that, or was only that organized, <laughs> you know, it's like, holy crap. <clears throat> but whatever. So there it is. Uh, Darren Lawson won his lawsuit. The other thing I wanted to point out, there was a great piece in the uh, the Bucks County Beacon um, that was published yesterday by Aaron Flynn Jay. Um, this is something to put on people's radar because Moms for Liberty is not going away, right? Moms for Liberty didn't show up just for this school board election. They are going to continue. And so this is uh, so this is the piece from the Beacon, right? Uh, Aaron Flynn Jay writes, the future of the Council Rock School District is at stake in this election, according to Rebecca Tillett, chair of the Together for Council Rock, the candidate steering committee. <clears throat> We're in danger of becoming the next battleground for the far right, who have already created such chaos in neighboring districts. We must keep Council Rock focused on education, not culture wars, said Tillett. Together for Council Rock um, opponents include three Moms for Liberty-aligned candidates, Moms for Liberty members Ann Horner, Natalia, uh, um, Natalia uh, Kavulia, um, who are both part of a private Moms for Liberty Facebook group, and Stephanie Nomos, um, who signed the Moms for Liberty pledge. <clears throat> existing, quote, existing board members have already expressed interest in book bans and censorship policies, unquote, said Tillett. If they're joined by the Moms for Liberty and their allies, they will be in the same sort of political turmoil that has engulfed Central Bucks and Penridge. Right? It's always comforting to know that uh, that your school district, the school district that you're in, has become the, the the model of what not to do, right? So other people can point to say, we don't want to be like them. Um, but nonetheless, is here we are. So Council Rock is uh, is all going. The rest of that article is kind of gets in some of the context and stuff. But the, the point being is that we've been focused a lot on this show. Initially, was going on Central Bucks. Now, really, even more focused on what's happened in Penridge because it's gotten that much more extreme, especially since the hiring of Vermillion. But we're seeing it spread just like we said it would, right? Just like, you know, I've said on the show multiple times that this is what we're going to see is that Penridge and Central Bucks are the test cases that are going to be the, the proof of concept so that they can be exported into other school districts. And it's just going to kind of, you know, and that's why, you know, that Moms for Liberty um, uh, uh, um, convention, whatever the hell they call it, down in uh, Philadelphia, um, that's the gathering point, the strategy point, right? About how to continue to do this. That's why you had, um, 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 <clears throat> what's his name? Adams, Jordan Adams from Vermilion, go down there and basically lay out the playbook, right? So again, Bucks County Beacon published that audio, right? Published that um, and that transcript from what what Adams basically went and told Moms for Liberty. It was basically the playbook of how to you know uh, how to take over a school board and how to institute this far right Christian nationalist curriculum. Right. And so if those three Moms for Liberty people win in Council Rock. Right. And there's already some support on the board for book bans and some of the Moms for Liberty stuff. Right. Council Rock could be the second Vermilion contract. Right. These are how these people play. Right. So, you know, kudos to the Beacon for once again kind of publishing this and recognize the kind of patterns here. Uh, this is a great article by Aaron Flynn Jay. Um, do check it out. It's called Moms for Liberty has Council Rock School District and its crosshairs. Um, link is in the show notes um, if you got it. And it's uh, it's right on the uh, Bucks County Beacon website. So do check that out. Um, good stuff in there. Um, <clears throat> 
and in more proof of concept stuff where, you know, this is what happens again. I, I, I don't want to say we told you, but we told you right, that what was happening at the school board level is the test case, like I said, proof of concept that was going to be pushed upwards, right? I've had arguments with people um, that cover the news from the kind of even left for progressive perspective, like out of Harrisburg and things like this, who have for a long time just kind of ignored what was happening to school boards because they wrongfully, in my view, viewed that what was happening to school boards was not simply just a local issue, right? And even if it was interesting in, interesting in the sense that like, oh my God, this is crazy, thought it was kind of confined there. My argument has always been, look, the reason why that you're going to have these national organizations fund lots of money into school boards like this is, and this is what Paul Martino understood, frankly, um, is that not only does it, you take over those school boards to kind of put an agenda in there, but you also kind of bump up the numbers of voters that will turn out, right, to vote in more broad elections, right? So that if you get people really riled up at the base and they show up to vote while they're there, they're going to also vote for the other kind of right-wing candidates. And now it seems to be the Republican Party in the uh, Pennsylvania uh, Senate, right, have signaled that, like, hey, hey, everybody, where are your people up here in Harrisburg? Right. So the Republican-led Senate um, passed um, basically a, a bill that would take the kind of policies that we're seeing passed at Penridge and in uh, Sundra Bucks and make that a statewide policy. Right. They call it explicit content legislation. Right. Um, this was passed um, on a 29 to 21 vote. And again, this is dominated. This is called Senate Bill 7. Um, it is uh, it was dominated. You know, it's a dominated. The, the Senate is dominated by Republicans. Um, and you even had one Democrat, Senator Lisa Boscola of Northampton County or, or out of Northampton. She voted with the Republicans. Right. Um, Republicans tried to say once again that this is not a book ban. We want more parental control. But by now, anybody who's listening to the show, you know full well that that is code word for Christian nationalist agenda. Right. That is a code word for we want these extremist policies. Right. We want to be able to ban books. Right. So they can say whatever they want, but we know what it says in practice. Right. State Senator Amanda Capaletti, uh, a Democrat out of Delaware, said that SB7, which I agree with her, is a book ban. She called it part of a, quote, stunning and increasing trend of censoring books in schools and libraries and a, quote, direct attack on the right to read and our freedom of speech. Capaletti said the extreme vocal minority pushing book bans was missing a glaring reality. Quote, we all like to believe that every child grows up in a family that loves and values them for exactly who they are. We know that, unfortunately, is not true, unquote. She said, adding that many kids are left needing support systems and information outside their families, which they can often find in books, 100%. <clears throat> so something else to watch. Now, again, why I bring this to your attention, does it have, um, will it pass and will it become law? That is unlikely right now. Why? Well, because Democrats excess, like successfully took over this, um, uh, the state House of Representatives, the state representatives, the state legislature, rather, right? So the Democrats control the lower house, right, by like one vote, I think, still, uh, which means that it's most likely not going to pass there. But that's a very slim margin, right? There's going to be some conservative Democrats, right, that are elected there that who knows, they might be willing to go there. And then it goes to Josh Shapiro. Will Josh Shapiro sign the legislation with kind of book bans in it? I don't think he will, right? But they're gearing up, right? They know as well that, yes, this is about 
This is making, you're basically having political capital off of these school board fights, right? And then you're using to leverage it, the attempt to pass this legislation as something to run on in 2024, right? So they're already gearing up for that and that's what's going on. Um, but crazy, you know, and it's, <clears throat> here, here we go. So more book bans, um, more school board craziness, uh, so much more kind of going on that I wish I could get to. Um, but that's what I got. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it there, folks, for today, uh, in part because I've still got a ton of grading to do. Um, and uh, later on, hopefully, if I get my grading done, I'll be able to little, spend a little time this afternoon or, or this evening uh, prepping for my D&D uh, session tomorrow, which I'm very excited about um, Yes, I run it with my kids and my brother-in-law and stuff like this, and it's um, my niece. <clears throat> and uh, we haven't played in a long time. I couldn't believe how long it was since we played, but uh, I'm very, very excited um, to do this, and we'll go there. I got some cool characters. I, I, I really have to make good on my promise to uh, start up stuff on our Patreon uh, thing. I, I, I'm going to be – well, let me just – I'll say this at the end. I, and I know I say things like this all the time on the show, and some of them I, I, I can accomplish, and some of them – it's just uh, it takes me longer than I than I think it's going to be, um, but after the election in uh, on, uh, in a couple of weeks, um, November seventh, um, make sure that you vote. Um, after the election in a couple of weeks, um, I'm going to do some serious thinking about um, kind of uh, how we move forward in the most most effective way. We're here with Raging Chicken. There were some things that um, I was I, I don't like that uh, that that I need that I need to work out. And then I'm also really trying to think about some of the ways to be most effective in, um, in ways that are also the most sustaining for me personally, right? Um, is, you know, it's no secret to any of you that this is a one person show here. Um, yes, I got lots of support from members and thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, support from people who share things out. And that's kind of like, if it wasn't for all of you, um, sharing out this content, sharing out information, um, um, sending me tips and things like this, then, you know, the show would, would be a shadow of what, of what it is now. Um, but I always imagine, you know, what we could do, right. If we had more resources, right. And you heard, you know, when we talked, when I, you know, had, um, uh, Cyril and Emily on from the Bucks County Beacon a couple weeks back, and talked about exactly this when it comes to trying to build out a sustainable media campaign. I mean, this is really um, such a critical aspect of building a democratic culture um, that extends beyond kind of the election cycle, right? It's something that has to be kind of ongoing and built. And so I've been thinking a lot about that um, um, from here. And, you know, if uh, one of the things that I, I would strongly recommend you do, if you want, some of the things that have been, I've been, got caused me to be thinking a lot about this again, is that, um, you know, just had, um, uh, just another release. Well, I'll tell you, um, hold on, give me a second. Um, so just this past week, we had um, Catherine Stewart on, um, Bucks County Beacons, Cyril had Catherine Stewart on. Um, we just released it on, on Wednesday. And um, it was a phenomenal a phenomenal interview um, uh, with Catherine Stewart. 
couple quotes from there. It says, what unites this Christian nationalist movement is uh, opposition to what they see as a modern secular republic. And the movement has been becoming more and more explicitly anti-democratic as time goes on. Um, that's what she studies. I mean, she just has a new, some new books that come out that she studies kind of Christian nationalists and their impact. And um, she unpacks a little bit about that, the history of the kind of development of this. Uh, fantastic interview. Do go check that out. Um, and I, I have to admit, you know, after that, that um, kind of going through and editing that interview, I was, it, it left me thinking about a lot of stuff. It left me thinking about, okay, how, you know, what actually needs to be done um, that I think I could contribute to. So, and that we can use this space uh, in order to, to do this. So Raging Chicken is going to be uh, uh, doing some thinking <laughs> for the next uh, kind of couple months. So we shall see. Um, but for now, look, like I said, uh, thank you to all our supporters. Thank you to everybody who's made this possible. Um, and, uh, you know, look forward to the fight ahead. Um, it's the weekend before Halloween. hope everyone has a safe Halloween. Well, hopefully I'll see you on Monday, too, as well. hope everyone has a safe Halloween. I'm going to do some pumpkin carving coming up. I'm excited about that um, after the D&D spooky stuff. So that's great. Anyways, uh, we're going to call it there. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. I want to remind you, you can help support this show. Become a patron by heading over to patreon.com slash rcpress. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, have a great weekend, everybody. Um, happy spooktacular weekend, if you will. I know. Anyways, see ya! I'll fly away now